0: Psalm 85, verse 6 says, Revive us again, O Lord, and let us know your joy again. Revive us again, and let us know your joy again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can continue in your presence. And Lord, we would confess that often the God we pray to is not in our thinking an accurate reflection of who you really are. We have whittled you down to our size rather than bowed down before you. You're such a holy God. That when people touched a mountain that you met Moses on, when they were not authorized, they were dead. When Uzziah tried to right the ark that was falling over, he was dead. And what we see is that you are high and lofty. You inhabit eternity. And yet you also said you will dwell with him who is of a humble and contrite heart to revive our spirits. Isaiah tells us that. So, Lord, we come. We want to see you for who you are so we can bow down. And then when we bow down, we find grace. We find the grace of Jesus who bore the righteous indignation, the righteous wrath of God in our place and rising again, Lord. We confess we can pray those things with little feeling in our heart. We want to know the greatness of the grace that we have received, Lord. I just don't want to just preach a sermon, Lord, and then we run out of here and that was it. How nice, how cute. Lord, would you meet with us this morning? Would you open our eyes? Lord, would you stir our hearts? Would your presence here be manifest, palpable, undeniable, so that you can do what only you do in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we can grab a seat. I did also want to add, if you guys know Chris, uh, married to Susan. Susan just came back. Uh, She was down visiting the grandkids in uh, Memphis. She fell and broke her arm, so he's home today caring for her. Uh, Chris, we're praying for you guys. And if you can reach out to Chris to see if there's anything we can do, that would be great. All right, revival is something that I have long thought about, prayed about, read about. There are incredible stories of revival that have taken place in Korea, India, Manchuria, China, Africa, America, Great Britain, on and on and on. I remember reading the story about a revival that took place in 1959 to 1952 in a place called the Hebrides, two small islands off the northwest coast of Scotland. Do you know how that revival started? There were two old women who really couldn't do much. They were old. They couldn't get around too well. They were actually blind. Peggy and Christine were their names, and they committed to start praying for revival to hit the Hebrides' island chain. And they prayed for several years. They would meet three or four nights a week, and they would pray until two or three in the morning. And they would pray the promise of Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 3, I will pour water upon him who is thirsty and floods upon a dry ground think later on in this series i'll tell you what happened but it is a remarkable undeniable story of god sent revival i know the pastors have taken many walks through the streets in the decades since we started the church and one verse that i've often prayed is isaiah 44 verse 3 i will pour water upon him who is thirsty and floods upon dry ground now more recently in this season i've been seeking the lord's face on what sermon series to do next. You know that COVID sort of changed everything. We're in the middle of 1 Corinthians, and we kind of took a detour. In that time, I have completely or partially calendared three different sermon series. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I felt like we should go to Daniel. um, And I actually started to calendar that. And and I want to go to Daniel, maybe in the fall. But I felt led to table that series. Then I had another series started that I started to work up on the present ministry of Christ. What Christ is doing right now at the, th- at the Father's right hand in session in authority. And great stuff, but I felt led to table that one. I even down to the very Sunday calendared out the rest of the first Corinthian series, which we will inevitably get back to, Lord willing. But there's a word that has just kept on coming back to me. It is the word revival. I just can't get out of my mind this idea of preaching on revival. When we think of everything that's happened on every level of our life, I just can't help but think of revival. And so I just got to a point where I finally just said, I think, Lord, you want us to tackle this idea of revival. Now, I'm very careful. There's only one word that we know is 100% from God, right? So sorry about you guys who have dreams and visions, and God sometimes speaks through dreams and vision, but none of them are authoritative like this book, right? So I can't say 100% sure this is what God wants, but I'm as confident as I've ever been about a series that God wants us to press into this matter of revival. You know what that means for you? It means that if you call Restore Church your home and you believe that the Lord is leading your leadership, that means that God wants to deal with you about this matter of revival. So this isn't something that I just came up with. This is something that I think that the Lord has for us. And I'll tell you this. I have no idea how long this series is going to last. It could last two weeks. Uh, Something could happen to me this week, so it could be a one-week one, okay? It could be two months. I have no idea. I usually calendar out where we're going to go when I do a book series. And I've got topics and and themes and text written down on a yellow uh, sheet of paper on my desk at home. But I I really don't know how long we're going to go. I just know God wants us to dive into this matter of revival. All right? And I'm asking you to pray for this series. And I'm asking you to pray for your heart and the hearts of those that you love and the hearts of this church at large. In the heart of this community. I have pretty modest uh, design for this morning. All I want to do is begin to answer the question, what in the world is revival anyway? I mean, I've heard that. It's one of those Christianese terms, right? Revival. Or maybe you think of CCR and revival type. Anyway, none of that. It means a lot of things. I'm going I'm to spell out what it means. I'm going to do this. Number one, I'm going to give you a definition of revival. You have a handout. I was going to do fill in the blank, but I didn't know if everyone would have pens, so I just kind of gave you the answer. So you don't even need to listen to the sermon. It's all right in front of you anyway, okay? I'm going to give you a definition. And then second of all, I'm going to give you a clarification, specifically six clarifications, specifically revival is not, but it is. mm. I'll, I'll fill that out. And then third of all, I want you to chew on a question for the rest of the week. In fact, I, I hope the question chews on you as it's been chewing on me. So where are we going in this series? You can say the word together. That was not very convincing. Where are we going? For how long? We have no idea. So let's go. Number one. What is revival? Psalm 85, verse 6, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The Hebrew word for revival literally means to live again. Now the word revival, Essie and I were just talking about foreign languages. She studied Latin. They don't really teach Latin too much anymore. Latin is where the word revival comes from. Two Latin roots. Re, which means again, and vive, which means to live. So even the word revival that we use in the English language breaks down to this this meaning to live again. Now, Who is in the Bible asking God to revive them? People who don't know God or people who already do know God? People who do know God, right? So those are people, as we know the fullness of the gospel is revealed in the New Testament, the Old Testament pointed to it, Jesus fulfilled it. These are people who actually are already alive, right? In other words, to be one of God's people is to be alive in Christ. If you're still in the grave, you ain't in Christ. Because Christians are people who have been made alive in Christ, and yet he's saying make us live again. And we know that if you are in Christ, you can't be un-in Christ. Because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. No man can pluck you out of the Father's hand. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ forever, for as long as he's raised from the dead, and he's raised from the dead forever. So now we're kind of in this quandary. How, how, how do you reconcile this? It's, for, it, it's, it's Christians asking God to help me, help me to come back to life again, and yet I'm already alive. What's he doing? And what he's doing is obviously this. He's speaking metaphorically, right? Are you with me? That, that in a sense, Christians can almost be asleep. That's precisely the language the Scripture uses in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, where it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The Scripture speaks of God's people as being able to be, to be asleep on the job, Right? In fact, he, 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 he combines this idea of taking a long nap with, boom, actually being dead. Awake, he says, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. It's like you're living like you're dead. You're not, but you're acting like you're dead. This is all through Scripture. Let me give you one more example. Chapter 3 of Revelation, one of the letters to the church, the church at Sardis, Jesus says, Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in my sight in the sight of God remember then what you have received and heard keep it and repent if you will not wake up I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you so How do you reconcile the fact that if this is for people to live again who are already alive in God, you reconcile it this way. The Bible teaches us as as if we can act like we're dead. We are sleeping. Does that make sense? So I was trying to think of of an illustration of that. Have you ever been around the bedside of somebody in the hospital who's up there in a coma? Anybody ever been around somebody in a coma? Doctor, you really have, Dr. Haber. That blows me away. I would, never would have imagined. Wow. I have on several occasions. I have three sisters, and way back when, uh, I think I was like 10 or 11 years old, they, they were in a plane crash, terrible plane crash. By, the, by an act of God, they survived. The small little twin, uh, jet, uh, twin engine Cessna that, that went down in, in, in a forest. But one of my sisters was in a, t- I mean, bad head trauma, bad close head injury. She was in a coma for several days. Her body is right there, tubes and all that going, coming in and out of her body. They're in a hospital bed. The monitor, boom, there, there is a heartbeat. You can see her chest slowly rise and fall, she's breathing, but, but she's in a coma. Right? So we don't even know what to do. If you you've ever been around somebody in a coma? You speak to them with hopes that the words are somehow getting through to encourage them, right? You, you're hoping the doctors can figure something out. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're throwing as many prayers as you can up to heaven saying, God, please move. Because your hope is that your loved one who's in a coma will get out of that hospital bed and live out the life that they now are experiencing not much of because they're in a coma. Christians can be in a coma. Coma of coldness. The coma of callousness. The coma of a critical spirit. The coma of compromise. The coma of carnality. The coma of laziness. The coma of indifference. The coma of hard heartedness. And I could go on and on, and right? We could go on and on. Christians can live like they are in a spiritual coma because they are. But when revival happens, it's like you getting off the hospital bed and standing back up, waking up and living once again according to the will of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, to the glory of God through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what's happening. It is, in a sense, like waking up on one hand from a deep, deep sleep or coma or even experiencing a resurrection of sorts. When God revives his people, let me make it clear. It's like waking up all over again. It's like getting out of the grave all over again. And Revelation 2 verse 4 says that happens as we return to our first love. This is often described as God coming down. You read the history of revivals, people describe it as God coming down. An overwhelming outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a visitation from God. And when that happens, his presence is palpably present. You experience his presence in undeniable, irrefutable fashion. So as we read in 1 Corinthians, even unbelievers come in and say, surely God was in their midst. Don't you want to have gatherings like that? You just want to show up? and check the box, or we want to come, and we want God to fall on us. Because in revival, God comes down. Now this revival, which must happen in individual hearts, if it will happen, if it will be ultimately be biblical, it will happen corporately, in a lot of hearts. In other words, when biblical revival happens, a lot of people are, w- are woken up, they come awake, and it happens to a lot of people in a given locale in a condensed period of time. Imagine, uh, do you remember how uh, when COVID hit, they, they spent all this money to get Cobo Hall ready? I don't think they ever actually put anybody at Cobo Hall. But it put tons of money and made it like into a field hospital. Massive hall. Imagine a massive hall with all these people on life support, on a coma, sprawled out across this massive concrete floor, little medical cubicles, cubicles everywhere. They're all in a coma, and boom, they all get up at the same time, healthy, living again. That's what happens in the church. That's exactly what happens. People who are in a spiritual coma here, 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 and there, they wake up. So here's a fuller definition revival is a spiritual renewal in the life of a church that has personal, starts with people, individuals, familial, it will hit your family, societal, it will hit the streets and global it'll hit the world effects now i had a couple different books i was going to bring to read quotes but in classic Hanafy fashion they're sitting on my desk right now but i want to try and recover one by memory i was reading about the 1904 welsh revival among the people of wales really in a coal mining region And one guy recounts that revival. He says, he was using a coal mining analogy. He said, when I first started coal mining, all we had was chisels and a mallet. But later on, they discovered dynamite, and we got a whole lot lot more work done. He said this, and I, and I I hope this comes across in sensible fashion. He said when revival hit, he realized, all the work he had of God he had seen up to that point was nothing but a chisel and a mallet. But when revival came, he saw the dynamite of God just start blowing up things and then changing things and growing things. So we're, great, we're grateful for the, for the chisel and mallet thing. That's how God usually works, right? Slow burn sanctification. But don't you long for some dynamite action as well? Do you even believe that's possible? Because revival is living again. Revival is us awakening from a spiritual coma where we need to. Revival is spiritual renewal or awakening that happens in the life of a church that has individual, familial, societal, and global effects. Point one, that's what revival is. Now, point two, here's some clarifications, not buts. Revival is not prayer, but there will be a whole mess of prayer. There will be a whole lot of prayer. Lloyd-Jones, the one I just quoted, he was doing, he preached a series of sermons called, um, just called Revival, I think. Uh, And it was on the anniversary of a massive revival that took place in Wales, another one in Wales, back in 1859. So he preached this series in 1959. And he jumps off from Genesis chapter 26. And in Genesis 26, you can read about how Abraham had dug wells in the region of Gerar so that the people of God could have water. But the Philistines, not liking the Israelites, came through and they stopped up the wells, do you remember, by filling it with all kinds of debris so that by the time Abraham's son Isaac wanted to get water out of those wells his father dug, he could not until he dug all that debris out so that the water would flow freely again. Now this is what Jones says. We must start with the work of the Philistines. It is no use saying, let us pray for revival. There is something we have to do before that. The work of the Philistines must be cleared out. That's what Isaac had to do. Now, I did not bring the longer quote, which I think opens us up so much more. But basically what he's saying, he's he's using a little bit hyperbole. He's not saying, don't pray until everything's dug out, okay? But he does say that, listen, if you really want the Holy Spirit to move, then you can't quench the Holy Spirit. Because the same Spirit who compels you to appeal to the Father for the outpouring of him it's the same one who inspired the Scripture. So if you're cutting and pasting Scripture, but you're praying for the Spirit to be pulled, poured out, how's he going to honor that? And he goes on to say, God cannot honor the appeal, however earnest it is, if it's based on lies. What in the world is this spade doing here? Thank you, Leo, for getting that out of the context. Uh, it's for whoever falls asleep. Okay, whack, all right? No, I I just wanted us to have a visual, tactile, tangible image of what we need to do if we want revival. We may have to get the spade out and dig some things out so we can get back to the water. We might need to dig out some Philistine debris... That will get us back to the absolute, unequivocal, it's not up for debate, authority of Scripture. We might need to get back to the centrality of the gospel. We might need to get back to the fact that people are not a a, a blank slate, but the reality of man's wicked, depraved condition across all people groups. We might need to get back to a fresh look at God, who God really is, so that we might have the fear of the Lord restored. We might need to get back to the non-negotiability of the absolute lordship of Christ over everything. There's not an atom in the universe that's not under his thumb. We might need to go to the utter necessity of the Holy Spirit to be poured out. We might need to dig stuff out so that we can get back to the conviction over sin that we have made a peace treaty with, and that's no peace. We might need to get back to the red hot love of people. We might need to get back to the smell of eternity, that it is appointed a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. We might need to get back to a persistent love for the church because she is Jesus' girl after all with all of her warts and blemishes. Now, if I'm willing to risk being misunderstood in order for us to say, maybe we need to dig some Philistine rubble out of our thinking so we can get back and see the water flow. This requires the digging out of the work of the Philistines. You might get some bloody hands. You might get sweat on your brow. You're going to get some calluses if you're going to do that. Think about how much Philistine thinking, you know, you know what I'm saying Philistine thinking, worldly thinking is, is, is piling up in your well every day. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. 24-7. Social media age. You are being pounded hour after hour, scroll after scroll, show after show, song after song, podcast after podcast, side conversation after side conversation with Philistine thinking. I don't think 40 minutes in the Word of God once a week and a daily crumb, five minutes in the Word of God is going to outweigh all that Philistine thinking without the Spirit of God working and without us repenting. So I have this spade here because I say to you, we have some spade work to do. We've got some digging to do. So that we can get back to these rock-solid realities. And now again, he's not saying don't pray until you've done all your digging, right? He, he uses hyperbole like preachers do. In fact, in that same book of revival sermons, incredible sermons on prayer. So let me ask you this. Wh- what comes first? Digging out the debris so we can get back to this stuff or prayer? What comes first? Yes. Thank you. Both. Right? What comes first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, There's probably an answer to that, but it's above my pay grade. I think you get the point. We got to dig and we got to pray. We got to pray and we got to dig. And we got to get back to these essential truths. I think that was my longest sub point, so relax, okay? Okay. We're going to keep this here. And it looks like one of those ceremonial ones never had dirt on it. It's a hypocritical shovel. But it is a shovel. And it's also here if you do fall asleep. All right. Second of all, let's run. Revival is not evangelism, but evangelism will be the fruit of it. Okay? So revival again is Christians living again, right? When people are... Revived Christians are revived, now they begin to be renewed in their burden for those who've never been redeemed. When you are revived, you start to care about the eternal plight of people who've never been revived or made alive. Now, how many people remember my Easter Sunday challenge having to do with reaching out to the lost. How many people? I just want us to be honest. One, two. Okay, here's a personal confession. I barely remember it. Okay, all right. I think of it from time to time, and it was, well, do you remember what it was? It was pray and target three, pray and target three. Now, I think it's good to have goals, But the point I'm trying to make is in the history of biblical revival is that revived people reach out. And your heart is now postured. Listen, you can have all the evangelism training. We can all have all the best systems and structures in the world. But if your heart's not for lost people, you're not going to reach out. And what makes your heart for lost people is when you are revived and you wake up again to the grace of God that is You have received without anything that you deserve except the opposite. So evangelism is not revival, but it always is the fruit of it. And there's incredible stories, by the way, of what happened in the Hebrides. I mean, conversions everywhere. It is said that 90% of the island legitimately came to faith in Christ, not little one, two, three, pray after me, and then you go on and live your life without Jesus, even though you say you follow Jesus. No, you're talking about bona fide, real deal conversion that lasted. They they walked with God. And people were getting saved in church services. They were getting saved in coal mines, on trucks, on the sides of the road. Incredible stories. And man, I think when God drops on us, man, can you imagine that block over there and that block over there? Because we, we want to see the people of 48202 and 48206, our zip codes, reached with the gospel. Who are they going to reach them through? You and I. So it is not evangelism, but evangelism is the fruit of it. Number three, it is not emotionalism, but there will be emotion in it. What is true is that in the history of revivals, many of the strongest revivals actually started with not much emotion. Now, that may, that may, that may blow you away because we read about revivals here and there, and some of them are real, and some of them, quite frankly, are fabricated with fleshly emotion. Nobody's life has changed. Ain't nobody walking with God more because of it. A man named John MacDonald, he lived in the 1800s. He was called the Apostle of the North. He was from Scotland, a Scottish minister. He wrote from his experience in the early 1800s, quote, the real success of revivals was in inverse proportion to the initial excitement. That is to say, the more permanent a revival was, the less of noise there was about it. And the more there was of a mere carnal stirring, the less there was of God and grace. So revival is not about trying to get all emotional. But man, oh man, there will be emotions there. Restore the joy that I had, he said. Or as David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. So I think the emotions that will come, if revival comes, there's going to be a lot of pain and tears and repentance and conviction and weeping. And that will give way to absolute joy, ineffable, indescribable. Number four. Revival is not a formulaic, pseudo-encounter with the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit will move. What's the word pseudo mean? Fake. False. Now, there is, there is no question. There is but no question that if a people would experience a reviving work of God, the Spirit's going to have to move. The Spirit has to move. But revivalist often kind of propose that people walk through some, this is the formula for how you're baptized in the Spirit. So just do one, two, three. Or here's the formula for how you receive the second blessing, as it's called. Or here's the formula for how you speak in tongues. Now, do all those things happen? I believe they do. But not because of some rinky-dink formula. God is sovereign. There is a long-standing intramural Fight within the Christian family between what's called cessationists and charismatics. Cessationists waste a lot of breath, in my opinion, arguing that the gifts of the Spirit are no longer operable. And I did say, I think they waste a lot of breath. I think you make a biblical case, that's not true. On the other hand, charismatics waste a lot of energy saying, if we're going to be revived, what we really need are all these spiritual gifts. And I think both miss the point. They both become hyper-focused on secondary Holy Spirit issues. So cessation has spent a lot of time saying, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Like hyper-focused with it. And charismatics spend a lot of time idolizing, saying that if we really want to see God move, everybody better be speaking in tongues, everybody get to, all this stuff, right? And I say secondary issues because the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus' words in John sixteen eight, is that he would come to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment because they believe not on me. So conviction, and then later on in John 16, verse 13, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes... He will not speak of himself, he will testify of me, which, by the way, is an indictment against a lot of the charismatic movement. He will not speak of himself, he'll speak of Jesus. And then you have this, the Holy Spirit's work in regenerating lost sinners, ripping out the heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh, and reawakening, reviving sinners, rather saints, people who are washed in the blood, made alive in God. He saves, he sanctifies, and here is a primary ministry of the Holy Spirit that happens in revivals. Christians taste of the love of God in a way that they never have before. You can be a Christian but not really feel the love of God so much. You might be able to put your finger on a verse and say, well, I know God loves me because the Bible says God demonstrated his love for me while that I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. That's good stuff. But Romans 5 leads off with this, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit is given to us. In other words, it's a one thing to describe the taste of honey, it's another thing to experience the taste of honey. And in revival, Galatians chapter 5, sons and daughters of the living God cry, Abba Father by the Spirit. They just become so acutely and sweetly aware that they are children of God. No formulaic pseudo-encounter with the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit will move. And I will just close that point with this. When that happens, if this were to happen, the Holy Spirit's gonna work out some outside of some categories that you're comfortable with. I'm just telling you. So it works. It doesn't fit nicely in a cessationist category or a charismatic. He will work outside of what our boundaries would be, consistent with Scripture, of course. And if you are not open to that, then I say to you, you're going to quench the Holy Spirit, just like the Holy Spirit's quench when we try to manufacture Holy Spirit stuff. And that happens as well. Let me move on. Revival is not based on unity, but true unity and needed divisions will emerge from the proclamation of the truth. So, what people usually say, what revivalists will often say is, um, if we really want to see a reviving work of God, what we all need to do is give each other a big group hug and kumbaya. That's the whole problem. The only reason God is not pouring out his spirit is because we're not unified. And what happens is they will often give a big kumbaya hug to somebody who has highly distorted views of God, if not outright heretical. Now, there's a bit of an impulse in, 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 in Scripture for this. John 17, Jesus did pray that we would be one. One. But there's a key component from John 17 on that unity, truth. He says, sanctify them with thy truth. Thy word is truth. There is a unity that's not according to Scripture. It's a uniformity, not a spirit-wrought unity. It is Tower of Babel stuff. Now, there's no doubt that there's unnecessary fractures over issues that should not divide the body of Christ. No doubt about that. Unquestionable. And when people make the plain thing the main thing, the gospel, the authority of the Word of God, all that, then we should be good. But Martin Lloyd-Jones, we quote him a lot, was not only a great teacher, a great preacher, a great theologian, he was a great church historian. And this is what he said, quote, People say you will never get the blessing of revival while the church is divided. They have not looked at church history. God has sent great revivals during times of great division. In fact, nothing promotes unity like revival and new and needed and fresh division as well. And that's why I think the soil might be great for revival right now. Number six. Revival is not scheduled, but we are responsible to pursue it. Revival cannot be scheduled, but we are responsible to pursue it. All right. Let's get the horses to the barn. Stay with me, please. This is, this is, this is a, a big, this kind of summarizes a lot of what I'm saying. When I became a Christian, I was part of a, a, a kind of a, a, a church movement where we would have Evangelists come in and they would hold revival meetings. We'd have spring revival and and fall revival. I know some of you know what I'm talking about, okay? Some of you guys do. You remember that? We'd have that and you'd have a whole week. Like you'd have Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, and all the way through Friday. You'd have like Pack the Pew Wednesday and all this stuff. And, you know, it, it was good as far as it went. If you had a solid preacher, good stuff. Ain't nothing wrong with a dedicated week of pressing into God, not at all. But revival is not a scheduled event. It's the undeniable inbreaking of the Spirit of God, heaven coming down. So I think there's two ditches to avoid. Two ditches. The reason they become ditches is because people in those ditches take a biblical truth and they divorce it from other truth. And truth without other truth can actually become error. So, you have people who can go into the ditch of passivity. I think we would be more prone to this ditch. This ditch, the people in this ditch get this right. They get this right. God is sovereign. Only God can send revival. Is that true or false? It's true. But then they, because of that, they become extremely Passive. The mentality is, you know, man, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And they don't do a licking thing. That's an abuse of Reformed theology. If you go back to the old heads, people of old who embraced the biblical doctrines of grace, it did not lead them to dead passivity, whatever's going to be, is going to be. It actually led them to expectant activity. So, sometimes people major on the sovereignty of God in a way that puts it out of balance with the rest of Scripture. He's totally sovereign, but that doesn't leave us off the hook, right? Now, the other ditch is the ditch of manipulation. People in this ditch do lay hold of the truth that they have responsibility, but they divorce it from the sovereignty of God. And they say, if we just do A, B, C, and D, we can create revival. Not just this individual thing, but this corporate thing in a condensed amount of time in a given locale. It's Charles Finney, who's heard of him? He lived in the 1800s. And he, he, he had this analogy. He said, it's kind of like a farmer. If you put the seed in the ground, you're guaranteed a crop. Which I thought, I'm not a farmer, but I do plant food plots for deer, and that's not a good analogy because you can put the seed in the ground, but a gully washer could come and wash all the seed away so you don't get the food plot, or you don't get any rain, or it's bad seed. But he said, just like a farmer can be guaranteed a crop, we can be guaranteed a crop if we just apply these principles. Now, let me tell you what Finney got right. What he got right was this. We, the people of God, are responsible to pursue Revival. We have responsibilities before God for which we are either going to obey or not. And obedience is better than sacrifice. We have responsibilities. And he got this right. I don't think we need to be afraid to saying that. He was absolutely right. And probably because there was dead passivity going around, he just kind of went over the top of some things. We are responsible to pursue revival. It is a matter of obedience to God. But what he got wrong is stating is that if we do A, B, and C, we can guarantee revival in that biblical sense. And that is wrong. And it actually hamstrings prayer. Because as long as prayer is just something in the formula to get revival, you ain't going to pray with your veins popping earnestly, passionately, God, unless you come, nothing's happening. You won't pray that way. Because you still think you have it within you to get the results you're praying for. But once you know, unless God steps in, you will pray in a whole other way. And you'll start forgetting about how you sound. And I can think about that. You'll start thinking about sounding good. You will just start crying out, oh, that we would have prayer meetings like that. We just start crying out to God. And what he also got wrong was importing techniques to create revival, the facade of revival, paper mache revival. He started something called the New Measures. They they started the altar call. You know, the altar call is actually a pretty modern phenomenon. You probably didn't know that because we're so saturated in that. The anxious bench or the sinner's prayer, pray one, two, three after me, boom, welcome into the family of God. You just prayed that prayer like, like it was a magic incantation. And I believe that's infected American Christianity to this day. That we have now devised all these techniques to manufacture a sense of revival. You got smoke machines. This is not a diatribe against smoke machines. If you want to donate one, I would love if Pastor Charles came up out of a billow of smoke to do announcements. That would be cool, okay? It's not a di- but you get what I'm saying, right? That is, we just manufacture the right, you know, and then you start softening the hard edges of the gospel, right? Well, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to speak on that hot button cultural topic because then people, and you you just start gaming it like that. And I believe this with all of my heart, that the result is there are unprecedented numbers of people in America who believe themselves to be a Christian when they are not. They're just not on a hospital gurney. They're still in the tomb. Well, what about you? Well, what about me? Am I in the ground? Have I ever been vived? Have I been, or I just need to be revived? Stay out of those ditches by holding these truths together. God is sovereign and we're responsible. You can let God connect the dots on that one. He already has. Remembering God is sovereign will keep us from manipulation in this journey. Spurgeon said, revivals, if they are genuine, do not always come the moment we whistle for them. Old Peggy and Christine, those blind ladies, they prayed for a long, long time. He says, try and whistle for the wind and see if it will come at your beck and call. Doesn't work that way. But remembering we are responsible will also keep us from being passive. Passive. Because in 2 Chronicles, that great verse that sometimes is, is ripped out of context by both sides of the aisle, forget all that. Let's just go to scripture. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. The Bible is a book of revival. The Bible tells us both in the Old and New Testament that God's people constantly drift into coma-like states of indifference, compromise, all of that. But God constantly promises to revive his people again as they turn to him. And the Old Testament is a cycle of good kings and bad kings and spiritual decline and apostasy and spiritual faithfulness and growth and rescue. And I'm going to close with this. Before I leave you the question, I think we're going to, I think, I I can't commit to this, but I think we're going to go to look at the life of Josiah next week. Josiah. Josiah took over as king, I think it was Judah, at eight years old. Can you imagine that? And when he's 16, he starts getting under conviction that the people he's the king over aren't living for the God that they confess with their mouth. Which reminds us of something Charles hammered yesterday. Let no one despise your youth, young people. There's one revival started with four teenagers who started praying for their church. in a hill not too far from their building. And when people found out that they were praying for them, they got, they got convicted. Like, we got kids praying for our spiritual revival when we should be doing that. Other parts of the church got mad. How dare they do that? <laughs> That's how God works. Let no man despise your youth. So Josiah, he starts tearing down high places and all this and that. He does basically a house cleaning. Sometimes revival starts with hitting what you know to be wrong in your life. And he has the temple. They have like a spring cleaning of the temple. And you know what they come across in the temple? They come across the sacred scrolls, the Word of God. They hadn't been reading it. They thought they knew it. You might think you know it, but are you reading it? And when he read it, he's like, oh my goodness, we are not living for God right now. We're dead. And he, in, there's a massive repentance. He tears his clothes and all of that. The Bible, just, I'm just saying, the Bible tells the story of revivals. You go to the New Testament, there's a letter to the book of Hebrews. Planet, just years earlier, they need revival. First and second Corinthians, they need revival. The seven churches of Revelation, you've, something good happens, I'm going to snuff you out, right? We're going to dive into these texts for the next, I don't know how long, okay? As we wait for the great revival at the end of the age, Revelation 1:7, when Jesus Christ returns, they shall look upon him who they pierced. They will mourn. They will wail. All tribes of the earth shall cry, and they will turn to him. And the Jews will flow into the kingdom like water of a fountain. It's going to happen. That's a great revival at the end of the age. So here's the question I want to leave for you. Do you want revival in your life? Do you want, I'm asking everybody here. I really am. I really am. I'm asking you, do you want revival? Do you want revival in your life? Do you want a fresh awakening? Do you want to get off that hospital gurney? Do you want a fresh stirring? I'm not, I'm not even asking you to pray about revival. Now, if you're inclined to, by all means, obey the Spirit. I'm just simply asking you to wrestle with it. Spend time the next seven days asking that question, do I want revival? Do I want it? I'm not even asking you if you think revival is possible. You may not. I'm just asking you if it was possible, would you want it? And I'm not asking you about anybody else. I'm not asking you to say, well, you know, my husband sure needs revival, my wife sure needs revival, you know, my parents sure need revival, my sister, my brother, my son, my daughter, my friend, my, this church member, that person. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you the question, do you want revival? Are you content with your spiritual state? And I want you to wrestle with that unlike I've ever asked you guys to wrestle for something. I was trying to think of ways how I could get you to remember it, and unlike the Target and Pray for Three and all that stuff, I I was like, I wish I had, I wish I could give people coffee cups that says, do I want revival? But I I don't have them, okay? Or a t-shirt, or even, I thought, boy, this would be great if I could give you guys all gift cards to Texas Day Brazil, you go there alone or with somebody or your family, and then after the meal, you ask the question, do I want revival? I didn't do that either. All I give you is a measly little bulletin that I decided to print early this morning in my house. But the question is there. Do I want revival? And if you get closure with this, I would ask you to ask this question. Would I be willing to pursue it, whatever it might mean? Would I be willing to pursue that kind of revival? You may not get to that question. That's okay. I do want you to wrestle the question, do I want revival? And then <coughs> we're going to pray and we're going to dig. Brian is going to come and Josh. And we're going to do something we don't typically do here. Some churches, they call this a special. Um, where I, They're going to they're gonna minister a song to us. And I just want you guys to bow your heads. And to talk to the Lord. And if you're not even talking to the Lord, talk to yourself. Say, am I content with my spiritual state? Do I want revival? And just see how the Lord works, right? Nick and Tina will be over in the corner for prayer during this song. And then when we're done with that that song, we're all going to stand. We're going to close in song before Pastor Charles comes with closing announcements. Let's pray. I'm going to tell you something. I have a card right here. It's from 2013. It's from a couple of people that I still love dearly. Um, And they wrote some glowing things um, about the church, um, about us, um, and things that would indicate that they were really walking with God. They no longer walk with God. Now whether what's needed is revival, like they're still in the ground, dead in trespasses and sins, or whether there's a great awakening coming to life, I don't know, I'm not God. But I wonder how many would be avoided like that if we asked that question, do I want revival? But not just that. I wonder if enough of us did that Not to avoid shipwreck, but for God to come in a powerful way. What an impact we could be on our community if we really squared up with this question, do I want revival? So again, as Brian sings, maybe your mind goes off to other thoughts. Maybe you follow along. You listen to the lyrics that are going to challenge us along this theme. Do I want revival? Father, I ask that every single person here, without exception, would wrestle with the question, do all revival. And I'm so grateful that you're a God who says, I not only dwell in a high and lofty place, but also with those of a humble and contrite spirit to revive the hearts of my people. In Jesus' name.